Welcome to My Life, Chassidah Supplied, episode 397. Today is Beis Nissen, which is the 102nd Yem Hilula, Histalkus of the Rebbe Rashab, right at the beginning of the month of Nissen in the year Tafresh Pei, which was the year that um, 1920, when the Rebbe Rashab passed away, and that same day also becomes when the sun rises, the Friedrich Rebbe assumed leadership of Chabad. Now, 1920 was a difficult time, so we'll begin by discussing Beis Nissen. It's also, of course, the month that leads us into the Rebbe's 120th birthday next week, which we'll discuss about much more next week, as well as, of course, Pesach, that comes on the 15th of Nissen. So that and much more is in store for this special program. This uh, episode is dedicated in memory of Bruce Good, Ruben, and Sarah Leffler. Thank you for that. So let's begin with Beis Nissen. We'll also talk about Pashas Mitzayda, which is this coming Shabbos, and Shabbos HaGadol, the Shabbos that always precedes Pesach. This year Pesach begins actually on Shabbos. And... Um, and other topics that are relevant to our times, all based on the questions that you continue to generate, which I appreciate, and is for the benefit of so many, which is all can be found at chassidahsupply.com, where there we have the platform of all these programs, all the archive programs, all the 396 programs before this one, including a place, a forum, where you can submit any question completely anonymously, and I will address it. In time. I say in time because there is a backup, to be honest, simply due to the number and the volume of questions that keep coming in. So let's begin with Beis and because that's today's day. As I said, the 102nd Yem Hilula, passing of the Rebbe Rashab, as well as the beginning of the Rebbe Friedrich Rebbe's leadership. As I mentioned, that was a very difficult time, 1920. It was the time when the Bolsheviks were coming to power. The Friedrich Rebbe would go through very, very difficult times, including ultimately his arrest. But before we even get to that, let's talk about the Rebbe Rashab. And uh, as one person wrote a question, what was the most important contribution that Rebbe Rashab made to Chassidus, and what can we learn from it to improve our lives? Okay, well, there are two main things that we always talk about the Rebbe Rashab, and I say we, we take the cue from the Rebbe himself, that the Rebbe Rashab was called the Rambam of Chassidus. So in addition to his many contributions and his many chidushim in understanding different elements of chassidus and ideas of chassidus, the Rambam of chassidus, like the Rambam, organized it all, taking, taking all the sugyas, all the themes and all the different concepts and putting them in a very organized form, and particularly in the two hemshechim, the two series of discourses, known as Hemshech Samach Vov or Tofre Samach Vov, which was delivered beginning in 1905, and the second, the Hemshech Terav, which began being delivered in the year 1912. And these discourses are not just one discourse. They gather together, they are a collection of and a series of many discourses, and they actually gather together all the concepts and all the ideas of Chassidus, starting from the Alter Rebbe, and as explained later by the Mitla Rebbe, the Tzemach Tzedek, and the Rebbe Marash. So if you want to have an organized I don't like to use the word encyclopedic because it's not quite written that way. It's written like Chassidus is written in a very particular way. But it does definitely bring together all the ideas in a very organized and very consistent fashion. Now, I've been teaching I.M. Bayes now for over 10 years, 11 years, since its centennial 1912, 2012. I teach a daily class, which I recently resumed, which everybody's welcome to participate in. It's a live Zoom and YouTube every morning, 9.30 a.m. Eastern Daylight Time. And just go to chassidusapplied.com for more information. So teaching I am Bayes and, and learning it in depth, you see this You see this come alive. You see how the ideas that we have learned and know from previous Rabbeim, but the Rebbe Rashab gives it a whole different spin and an entire different context. Because when you see it separately, you see each piece in its own way. But when you see all the pieces coming together in a puzzle, it gives you that uh, that that synergy that only comes together when someone like a master like the Rebbe Rashab 
is able to join them together, even though initially they may seem different topics, but they come together in this beautiful, eloquent way. It's very hard to describe the poetry of Chassidus as the Rebbe Rashab lays it out. But to be more specific, Chassidus essentially comes to that one down to one thing, and that is finding an interface between ourselves and godliness. How we mortal human beings in this earth, through Torah and Mitzvahs, which was given to us by God, can connect and unite and turn into godly human beings, fulfilling our very purpose and mission in this world. And this is the central theme in general of Torah, specifically Chassidus, Kabbalah and Chassidus, but you see come alive in the Rebbe Rashab's explanations where he goes through every detail of this interface. And it's not a simple interface because we're dealing with connecting the finite and the infinite, the mortal and the immortal, a creation and, and its creator. They couldn't be more distant from one another. And yet, God in his elaborate way developed a, a system, an infrastructure, which is called Seder Ishtalshlis, the cosmic order, that through which he used to create existence in a way that would make sense to us and in a way that we can retrace the steps like stepping stones and connect. And that is what is so amazing about it because it's a true blueprint, it's a formula and a model of taking a simple human being in this mundane world and infusing ourselves with deeper purpose and ultimately connecting with and becoming one with the divine. What greater achievement possible than that? So whatever we accomplish in this world, whether the businesses we built and the money we make, these are all mortal physical things that are temporary and don't last. But imagine that a mortal human being with all our limitations and our constraints cannot just get beyond those constraints, but actually connect to the infinite and embody it and personify it. This is the essence of Chassidus. And the Rebbe Rashab Maimorim discourses, you see that come alive in the fullest sense of the word. <coughs> I'm not even discussing the very details of each discourse and explaining the innovations, how the Rebbe Rashab explains each aspect of it. Now, second point is that the Rebbe Rashab also established, we'll call it a training academy, otherwise known as Temchet Mimim. And in 1897, he established the yeshiva of Temchet Mimim, which was to produce not just scholars and not just Evdim, people who serve God, as he writes in his Kuntus Eitzachayim, which was, in a sense, explaining the mission of this new school, it wasn't just that, because there were other schools that produced that, but to create soldiers. Soldiers that would take Torah, that would take mitzvahs, that would take davening, tefillah, and turn it into weapons. And I say weapons, spiritual weapons, not physical ones. Spiritual weapons to fight a spiritual war in transforming the materialism of this world in transforming the material existence into a divine home. The Rebbe Rashab, in his foresight, saw what was coming in the 20th century and realized the necessity to have such an army, to have such soldiers. And that is the second contribution that I would say was not just so. He gave us the blueprint, and we have the, the manual to follow, so to speak, the operator's manual, but also training people to actually be able to use it and implement it. So when we honor the Rebbe Rashab, this 102nd uh, year of, from his passing, we honor these contributions among many, many others, which are just too much to enumerate. The Rebbe lived a life, a full life, many years as his leadership. I mean, he became a Rebbe quite young, actually. When his father, the Rebbe Marash, passed away, the Rebbe Rashab was only 22 years old. He was born in Tafresh Chafalov and in Tafresh Mem Gimel, 22 years later, his father passed away. So even though he didn't formally assume leadership immediately, but he was already accepted as Rebbe and began saying discourses. So you're talking about a span from 19, we're talking about uh, Tafresh Mem Gimel, which is the equivalent of 1883, all the way through 1920. So you're talking about the significant amount of time and the turn of the century, uh, maybe the most, the most uh, dramatic and most radical century in history. And the Rebbe Rashab, like a true leader and visionary, prepared the ground. So when you think of it in that context, you really see the contribution. When it comes down to Chassidus Applied, is that this program is all about applying Chassidus to our lives and very much comes from this blueprint that was provided. Obviously, based on the Chassidus that came before the Rebbe Rashab and 
the additions of the Friedrich Rebbe and the Rebbe in our seventh generation. But there we have the Rebbe Rashab and his and his full blown, full uh, full blown, and the, his contribution in full glory that gives us the strength, and empower, empowers us with the tools, with the wisdom, with the approach, with the methodology to actually transform this world. I remember when I started teaching I Bayes, I did a video promo. I called it the tale of two Titanics, because actually the Titanic sank just a few weeks before the Rebbe Rashab would begin delivering his classic. Magnum Opus, Hemshechayim Beis. So the Titanic represented the uh, opulence and the power of man-made uh, the Industrial Revolution, and everyone thought it was unsinkable. The Rebbe Rashab's Titanic, which rose after that Titanic sank, introduced the spiritual Titanic that would, be, that would actually be unsinkable and actually give us the power to transform a material world into a spiritual environment, into a divine home. So there we have... Just a little summary of uh, Beis Nissen, and of course what it teaches us how to improve our lives. It teaches us how to be the best we can possibly be, to actualize our potential, to fulfill the purpose for which we were created. As I said, it all comes down to a, a, a purpose that comes down to the purpose of why we're here, and that we simple mortals can actually connect to a divine, eternal, and infinite mission in this lifetime and ultimately transform the world and bring personal and global redemption. It's interesting, it always begins, it always, that's this day, the second of Nissan always begins, is always at the beginning of the month of, uh, of Nissan, which is called the month of redemption. And it's also the month Nissan coming from the word miracles, as the Rebbe Rashab himself explains in many of his discourses, including in the famous HaChodesh Hazeh Lachem, a mimer that is connected to the month of Nisan that he delivers in the Hemshech Samachvov, the idea of introducing a completely new type of energy that's seeing in nature itself that we're able to transform and elevate it to the level of miracles that are beyond nature, to a transcendent experience. And that is, of course, a central theme in that series as well as in the other discourses of Chassidus. Now, as I mentioned, coming from um, the, the Rebbe Rashab, the Friedrich Rebbe, immediately is the only son, began being Rebbe right there. Literally, that the sun, as the sun sets, the new sun rises. What is the sun here? The sun referring to the Rebbe, the sixth generation, the Friedrich Rebbe. And indeed, as the Rebbe Rashab instructed him, he begins saying in Maimar Discourse Chassidus, he began immediately after the Shiva, after the mourning period of the Rebbe Rashab, and the Friedrich Rebbe said it officially to one person, to Rabbi Rifkin, but Rabbi Rifkin opened the door that others should be able to hear it as well. And the Friedrich Rebbe then took everything his father taught and learned and taught him and taught us and the previous Rabbeim and brought it to the next generation with all the challenges that would come. As the Rebbe Rashab told his son that may your leadership and may your work be bechesed or barachimim, with kindness and compassion, recognizing that it would require that type of blessing. Because he had to face, going from the frying pan into the fire, face the Bolsheviks, the communists, the Yevsexia, the Jewish communists, that went to all-out war against everything the Friedrich Rebbe wanted to accomplish, which was to strengthen and to bolster and to make Judaism grow. To the point that he was arrested, famous story of the... Friedrich Rebbe's arrest. So even though we're not talking about Yud Beis Tamas now, just wanted to give the context of the Rebbe Rashab leading to the Friedrich Rebbe, which would become a very difficult time, and yet we made it through. And there's no doubt that the strengths and the teachings of the Rebbe Rashab, that we, who, who we're honoring on this Beis Nissen, gave the Friedrich Rebbe the strength to continue in addition to his own strength, and that would lead us later to, to the further 20th century after World War II, and the terrible Holocaust, and then the Renaissance that would begin afterwards and with the Rebbe assuming leadership in 1950. So there you have context, 1920 to 1950, those 30 years is the Friedrich Rebbe, the most turbulent years, and in 1950 the Rebbe assumes leadership, and here we are today honoring the Rebbe's 120th birthday, which was in 1902, actually during the time of the Rebbe Rashab's leadership, and here in America, 
once the Friedrich Rebbe came in 1940 to America, and then the Rebbe in 1941, continuing that work, which is our job, to take these teachings and use it as that blueprint. Today we have a very different world, where we don't have, the, we, we don't have the, the challenges that they had. We have the comforts. We have our challenges, but it's very different challenges. We have our comforts. We have our prosperity to bring chassidus to the world, which of course is the very purpose of this program and the very purpose of our lives. In the fullest sense of the word. And with the technologies, technologies that we have today available to us, it's a very different reality, a different scene. And there's really no excuse for us to not use every possible resource we have to really bring the chassidus of the Rebbe Rashab and the Friedrich Rebbe, that, which in turn channels the chassidus of the Rabbi and the Rebbe Marash and the Samach Tzedek, Mittler Rebbe and the Alter Rebbe and those before him to every person possible in this earth. Okay, so with that, let us move into the other activities of the, the other events of this week, which include that we're going to be reading Parshas Mitzayda and it's Shabbos Hagod, this coming Shabbos. It's called the Great Shabbos. So let's start with Parshas Mitzayda, which seemingly you could argue, goes, we're talking here the month of Nisan and miracles. You're talking about the month of Geula, redemption. You're talking about Beis Nisan, Chassidus, which is purpose is to help bring the redemption. As Mashiach told the Baal Shem Tev, that I will come when you spread my, when your wellsprings will spread outward. And suddenly, Mitzayda, how does that fit in here? Sazria, you could say, last week's chapter, the one we read yesterday, you could say, okay, Sazria is talking about conceiving and giving birth. Even though the themes of the chapter are similar to the themes of Mitzayda, which talk about leprosy, but how does that suddenly fit into, it seems like so antithetical, anticlimactic, antithetical to the very themes of this positive energy. And yet we find that Mashiach is called sometimes Mitzayda, the Gemara tells us. So there's an expression in the Sefer Yitzira, perhaps the first Kabbalistic work of all attributed to Abraham, Avram Avinu, that There's nothing lower than Nega, the leprosy of the Tsaras, of the Mitzayda, and nothing greater than Enig, and it's the same letters. Nega and Einig are the same three letters, Ayin, Nun, Gimel. When spelled one way, it's pleasure, which is referring to the highest level of Atik, the level of divine pleasure. When it's spelled another way, it's Nega, Ein Lamata, nothing lower than that. Because the ultimate purpose of existence, this is as I alluded to earlier, is because God desired there should be a Dirabetachtenim. He didn't want only in the higher worlds the divine presence. That was no Chiddush, there's nothing new about that. That, that the higher worlds where there's no d- darkness and there's no challenges and there's nothing antithetical to the divine, that's not a, that's not, that's, there's nothing innovative there. Dafkin tehtenim, in a world like ours, as the Alter Rebbe explains in Tanya chapter 36, what does he explain? Tehtenim means the lowest of worlds, not lowest in space, lowest in revelation, a world where you do not feel or sense the purpose of existence to the point that you can convince yourself you're a self-made person. Me and no one else, Aniva Afsiyat, a world that's completely shrouded in darkness, spiritual darkness, to the point that it actually defies the divine. And that's where the purpose is. In the world of Nega, in a world where there's possible leprosy, where there are toxins, there's pollutants, a world of darkness, that that we should transform. So it's very fitting. So when we say, to disseminate and to spread the wellsprings outward, what does outward mean? Outward means to the farthest outskirts of existence, into even a place where there is dysfunctionality and where there's, pollutant, where, there's, where there's pollution and there is reason to quarantine, a place of disease, spiritual disease, any type of disease, that that too should be transformed from nega to enig, should become the root source of the greatest pleasure, the nesava Kodesh Baruch who God desired, nesava connected to pleasure. He has a desire, pleasure, from the transformation of this deepest darkness into the greatest light. So that's one basic lesson from this chapter, Mitzayra. And which also tells us something else. You know, people, very, it's very nice when, people, when, when we experience happy moments and joyous moments, and everyone should only be blessed with that. But the question we all ask, is God also in our pain, and in our suffering, and in our agony, and in our anxiety? And that's the greatest challenge of all, because when things are going well, okay, I'm blessed. 
But when things are not, we feel alone. We feel forsaken. We feel isolated, abandoned. And that's also the lesson. That that too is a chapter in the Torah. Even Mitzrayah, who is, who is quarantined, sent off to be separate from the community. That that too is a name in the chapter. It's a name of a chapter in the Torah. Just like there's the name of the chapter, Bereshis, which is the beginning of creation, Genesis. And other names. Mitzrayah is a name in the Torah. That means even that is elevated ultimately. Because that's his purpose. It's not to remain in that state of a leper. A pariah. But rather, that too should be transformed. Which leads me to some of the questions that were asked about this. In our current Parshas chapters, we are reading about leprosy and quarantines. We are taught saras, saras is the leprosy, is a spiritual punishment for someone doing the sin of Lashon Hara, speaking evil about others, and Rechila. Since we are also taught that God punishes and rewards Tit for tat, midah keneged midah. Would it be fair to say that quarantine is the perfect punishment for gossiping? Because during the period of quarantine, the leper is, uh, uh, the leper is alone and cannot gossip to anyone because people stay away from him. Or are there other reasons explaining the saras and its remedy, the leprosy and its remedy? So that is true. It's very important to emphasize the Torah here is not talking about a physical form of leprosy is talking about a spiritual form that comes as a result of, of slander and speaking an evil tongue about others. And there's many explanations why that exactly is the, is the so-called cause and effect. I don't like to use the word punishment. But there's no doubt being alone, yes, is in a sense a way of a tikkun, a repair for someone who spent time with others talking badly about other parties. So quarantine is one of the ways. But remember, everything is not an end in itself. The quarantine is meant to teach a lesson, to think about yourself, to be accountable, a little introspection and soul-searching, that when he does return to the community and is purified, he should know that this time, use your tongue to speak kindly about others and compassionate. And again, it's the transformation of the nega, of the leper, transformation of the quarantine itself, because that's what it is, a time of introspection. When you're busy just gabbing and, and, and slandering and talking bad about people, no, there's a time where you have to be separated and be on your own and think about your life and take account and be accountable for your life. And when you're alone, that's one of the qualities. It's not meant to be alone just to make you feel completely isolated. It's meant to be alone so you can think about your behavior and almost say you, you, wanted to, you, you should earn your way to be able to be back with the community. That's in a very basic and very balabatisha way to understand the leper and, and the remedy. So yes, are there other reasons? There's definitely other reasons as well, but let's suffice with that for now. Dear Rabbi Jacobson, first of all, I want to thank Hashem for your return to broadcasting. May continue to give you health and all his open and revealed blessings. Thank you very much. I have two questions, one relating to Parshas Sazriah and the other to Parshas Mitzayra. Sazriah is what we read yesterday, last week, and yesterday concluded, read the whole chapter in the, in, on Shabbos. And Parshas Mitzayra is the one that we're beginning now and we'll be reading this coming Shabbos, the full chapter. Regarding Parshas Sazriah and the question of when life begins, the opening verse in the chapter mentions conception, when a woman will conceive and she will give birth to a male child a topic that is seemingly irrelevant to getting to the point about birth and the birthing person's subsequent impurity and purity, which indeed is where it leads to, to tell us about the days of purity and impurity and how to purify from all that. From the fact that we're told about the conception means that it's significant in itself. And Torah points out the principles of the holiness of intimacy and the effects that the parents can have on their offspring right from the moment of conception. Correct. Bringing this to current events and topics in the news, how should this impact our view on when life begins? The WHO, the World Health Organization, recently called on governments to scrap the legal time limit on abortion. In other words, abortion should be allowed up until the time of birth. To me, this strikes me as evil and as murder. Does the Torah view life beginning at viability, at a heartbeat, at conception, did the Rebbe ever address the abortion issue? Well, 
First, let's, let me first put things into context here about Sazria. This is indeed one of the places where you see that even though the chapter continues to talk about the time of purity and impurity, the impurity of, after a birth and so on, but the focus is on the birthing of something, the conception of life, which is the name of the chapter, Sazria. And that also emphasizes what we discussed earlier, that even though, yes, a mother will go through birth pangs and she will go through the need to heal from some of the pain and some of the effects of the birthing, but at the end of the day, it's a birthing. And in this world, a birthing can be painful. After Adam and Eve ate from the tree of knowledge, that was one of its effects. But nevertheless, it does give birth, and ultimately to the birth of what we want, a birth of a new world, just like the birth of a new child. Now, as far as addressing the issue of when life begins, I don't know if you could derive from the verse in Sazria this issue. The fact is, abortion, this is not something from the Rebbe necessarily. It's a Torah issue, that abortion is not a simple matter, unless there's a threat to the woman's life. Now, the question whether the fetus is, is a life on its own or not is irrelevant almost, because the fact is, either way, it's part of the mother's body now. And we're not allowed to mutilate or in any way harm any part of a human body, and definitely not a viable fetus. The issue of abortion, therefore, is pretty clear in halacha. Again, accept exceptions, and this needs to be asked by rabbis and competent rabbis. I'm not going to give a ruling here if, there, if an exception applies, but generally speaking, yes, it's the sanctity of life that begins at the moment of conception, and there are many ways to discuss it in detail. Whether, again, whether we're talking about a life, because the fact is if a mother's life is threatened, then you can't abort which would tell you that the, that the fetus is not as alive, so to speak, as the mother is, because it's still part of the mother. Well, I shouldn't really say it's not as alive as the mother. It's not as an independent, viable entity as the mother's life is. But that's a discussion really not for here. As far as that, so this is, I don't know if you can derive and learn from this from Kisazria, Yishe Kisazria, but since you bring up the point, I just wanted to comment on that. The next question the same person asked, now, regarding Pashtas Mitzayda over the pandemic, we were able to see how lockdowns and quarantine had no positive effects on preventing illness, with lots of negative side effects, some indeed truly devastating, including economic, social, societal, psychological, and so on. These included, include people who became impoverished, children who suffered academically and socially, and unfortunately, suicide. What lessons can we learn from this for the Mitzvah who needs to quarantine? Does Torah address how the Mitzvah can be supported so he, she doesn't suffer grievously beyond the period of his, her leprosy? Well, first of all, I don't want to come to any conclusions whether quarantine had any benefits or not. You can argue maybe now it's definitely being overdone and other stuff like that. But the fact is, even according to Allah, when there's a disease, yes, Dever, it says, one is supposed to either leave the town or quarantine. Based on the verse in Pasha's boy, which is connected to the, the Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim and Pesach, that Atem, when there was the plague of the firstborn, Moshe says to the people, that you should not leave your homes till the morning. So to suggest that quarantine has no benefit at all in a time of a, a pandemic or epidemic, I would not make that statement. The extent of the benefit and whether it was politicized and exaggerated is definitely a discussion. But I don't want to go there and it's not really relevant. As I said earlier, the only reason of quarantine when it comes to the mitzvah is because that itself is a tikkun, a repair. Now, first of all, on a very basic level, when a person is in a state of disease and that's contagious, you quarantine a person so others should not catch the disease. So to suggest that quarantine doesn't have that benefit, that's not true. It's not about 2020. We're not talking about COVID right now. In history in general, sometimes that's what was needed to be done. And we see it all the time. When a person has a particular cold that is very contagious, that person is told to stay home and not make contact with others. And this is that, that's a medical uh, reality. In the spiritual sense, we talk about a mitzvah, this isolation is also in a certain way because he's polluting other people, the mitzvah is, due to his slander and his speech and other ways that he's doing that. And you need to be so-called separated and also time to, on your own to think about what you did. 
and to correct and amend your ways. So there's the concept of that, that any person who's going to atone for something can't just party along as if nothing happened. Part of it is, yes, being isolating yourself, meditating and contemplating on what was done, and improving your ways. So that's how I would see it. Of course, the Torah would never isolate someone to the point of danger, where they can be harmful, or be, whether in a way that could be harmful to the person. It's all meant for healing purposes. It's never meant in a way to destroy or to hurt anyone. So yes, that's correct. And that's why there are details of how the Mitzvah gets healed and gets purified. And it's not just some type of endless isolation with, with, with no end in sight. So that is critical to emphasize as well. Okay, much more to be said on these chapters, but I've summed up some of them. The Rebbe speaks about it in a number of sikhs when he speaks about Sazriya Mitzvah in context of especially the Geula, the redemption, Mashiach, and so on. Since this coming Shabbos is Shabbos HaGadol as well, so what lessons from Shabbos HaGadol, what personal lessons do we learn from this Shabbos? Now, there are many different reasons that this Shabbos is called Shabbos HaGadol. The Alter Rebbe brings the main reason, the Nez Godel, it was a great miracle. That's why it's called Shabbos HaGadol. It was a great miracle where the Lamaka Mitzayim B'Chereihem, where the, the firstborn turned, they themselves turned on, on the Egyptians. Now, there are different variations of the miracle and how it's explained in different places. I think I've discussed it a number of times. I've definitely written about it. There's interesting, another Rashi brings in his Sefer Apardis that one of the reasons it was called Shabbos HaGadol because on this Shabbos, the rabbi makes a special Shabbos HaGadol drasha, a sermon. And the sermon would go longer than usual to the point that people would say, Oi, look how long this day is. Because when something goes very long, you say, look how long the day is. And I discussed this also, this sounds almost like a, 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 a humorous type of take on long length. But nevertheless, it's also one of the reasons given for it. As far as our, in our lives and the lessons that we can learn from it, so being that it's the Shabbos before Passover, it makes most sense. It's a Shabbos that prepares us and blesses Passover. Now Passover's essential message is transcendence. We'll talk about that next week as we prepare for Passover. Next week will be a special Passover and Yudal Nissan edition. Uh, transcendence, as the word implies, Passover. We transcend all the limitations and the constraints and the fears and inhibitions and insecurities and anxieties, all contained and, and hidden in the word and hinted to in the word Mitzrayim. Mitzrayim means boundaries, limits, constraints. Yetzirah Mitzrayim means getting out of them. So it's all about transcendence. When you say Shabbos HaGadol is the Shabbos that blesses that transcendence, so it makes sense that another way of understanding Godel is a transcendent Shabbos, a Shabbos that blesses transcendence. And in many ways, the events that did happen, the miracles that happened on that day, were all about transcendence. The fact that the Egyptians, after so many hundreds of years, punished, punished made Jews suffer, afflicted them, oppressed them, and then they should turn on each other is a very transcendent thing. Because it was, in other words, they started self-destructing from within. And that's what we learn from this, this, this Shabbos HaGadol. That we have the capacity not just to leave and free ourselves from our constraints, but even using the constraints themselves to turn on each other. Which in the psychological terms, it's like saying... The things that don't make that don't don't the, if if that which doesn't kill me makes me stronger. Using the negative itself, like the Talmud says, that the way to cut down a tree is with the, is the axe that has the handle of the axe is made from the wood of the tree. That a way to heal is to actually use the negative and turn it into a positive. That's one of the lessons in this Shabbos that we can all learn from. Now, of course, our goal is to find transcendence. But the real redemption is when you transform even the darkness that led you to this place, the lessons you learn from it, the experience. So people who've been hurt, or whatever way, whatever Mitzrayim, however Mitzrayim translates in your life, that you learn from the hurt, you learn from the experience, things that only you could have learned because when you go through it, you have certain knowledge, a certain awareness that someone who did not go through it can never really know. They can only read about it, but they can't know it in their gut. And that's one of these lessons that helps us understand how to create true transformation in our lives. So this leads me to the next section. We're going to talk about Nissan, the month of Nissan, which we've just entered. 
is one of the reasons it's called Nisan. The Talmud says, because Nisim, Nisim, Nasole. Nisim, Nisim, Nasole. Miracles and miracles of miracles happen in this month. So Nisim comes from the word miracle. So a few questions that were asked about this in this regard. And goes like this. What, what, what type of miracles happen this month? Are, to we, are, are we to expect miracles to occur now as they did during the exodus from Egypt? And to read more specifically, we have been taught that the miracles of Purim and the month of Adar were hidden in nature. And the miracles of Pesach and the month of Nisan were supernatural miracles. To just elaborate, in Purim, the miracle did not happen in a supernatural way. It didn't in any way, it didn't in any way suspend the laws of nature. Within natural events, you see a miracle emerged. Whereas Passover was a direct miracle, the ten plagues, and then the miracles of the Jews leaving Egypt, etc. So that's what this person is referring to. So now he asks, we have the word Nisim for miracle within nature, and Nifloi is for, for supernatural miracles. So Nisim is a word of miracles, and Nifloi means wonders. But doesn't the name of the month of Nisim sound closer to the word Nisim? Doesn't Nisim sound more like Nisim miracles, which are natural miracles, and not to Nifloi's, which are wondrous supernatural ones? So what's going on here? So I'm not really sure what the question is. Why are you assuming that Nisim are miracles within nature and Nifloi's are miracles outside of nature? Nisim include everything, include all miracles. Yes, there are miracles that are hidden in nature, and there are miracles that are beyond nature. Nisim includes both of them. Now, when you break it down, there's also Nifloyis. Nifloyis are wonders that maybe are even greater than miracles, maybe the wondrous miracles. But the fact is that Nisim is the month, is the month of miracles, and in this case, revealed miracles that are supernatural. That's the answer to that question. Now, the second part of the question, or the second question, I should say, what is the source where it says that miracles that happen during the Exodus from Egypt will happen during the final redemption on an, an even grander scale? And if this is, is indeed the case, since the miracles already started in the time leading up to the Exodus from Egypt, and we are currently in the era leading up to the final redemption, can we expect to start seeing big miracles? And the answer to that is, this brings us to Nefloes. The verse says, and this is the source, in Yeshaya, he says, in Michal, rather, as it was in the days when you left Egypt, I will show you wonders. And here the word Nefloes is used. As a matter of fact, in the year Tavshinun, the Rebbe coined that year, Tavshinun is the acronym Teheshnas Nisim. And the next year, the Rebbe coined the Tavshinun Alev, Teheshnas, Nifloyes Arenu, from this verse, Nifloyes Arenu, wonders that I will show you. And have applied that to the two years, Tavshin Pei, Teheshnas Ployes, wonders, and Teheshnas Ployes Arenu, Pei Alev. So, so wonders often can mean in revealed miracles themselves even greater and higher ones. And that indeed is the expression used in that verse. And the Tzemach Sadiq explains, Niflois is nun ployes, that it has unbelievably powerful divine revelation, even more than regular miracles. And that's the context. But it's still compared to, as I did it in the days when you left Egypt, I will show you wonders. That means also in the days we left Egypt were also wonders. And yet they'll be even greater when in the future. Now, get to get to the second half of the question, we sure could use miracles today. Look what's going on in the, in the world, beginning with the war in Ukraine, the displacement of so many innocent people, many, many Jews, the fear involved, obviously deaths. But now also, unfortunately, we've also seen recently, and Hoya should be the last terrorist attacks in Israel. So we sure can use them. So in context of your next question, of your second question, are we currently in the era leading up to the final redemption? Can we expect to start seeing big miracles? The answer is yes. And I don't say it on my own. This is something the Rebbe spoke about 30 years ago, 31 years ago, 32 years ago, that it's not just names of years, but you can actually expect to see miracles. And we did see miracles. The fall of the Soviet Union that was bloodless and many other miracles the Rebbe spoke about then, the Gulf War, 
And there's no question that right now there are also miracles happening. Sometimes you see them more openly, sometimes less so. But we definitely can demand and expect and hope for true miracles and ultimately the greatest miracle, I ran into flies, of the Gula Amitiz Vashlema. So that's a segue into the next question. Recent terrorist attacks. What can we do about the recent terrorist attacks in Israel? Dear Rabbi Jacobson, thank you for publicizing on your Sunday podcast the Rebbe's words from 30 years ago that we should add Hareini Mekabla and Ach Tzadikim, the two prayers in the beginning, in the morning prayer, in the beginning, that Hareini Mekabla, I accept upon myself the mitzvah of the Haftarecha Kamecha, to love another like myself, and at the end of the prayer, Ach Tzadikim, Yeshu Yisharim, that the Rebbe also suggested to add, which focuses on bringing peace to the world. So thank you. So this person is writing about that. That's why I mentioned, I'm, I'm explaining what he's referring to. So thank you for um, publicizing that, that that should be said before and after davening to help bring peace into the world. Many people have been doing this to help bring peace to Ukraine. And it seems to be working there in Ukraine. The, the situation there is still very serious and dangerous, but it's getting a little better. The Ukrainian army has pushed back the Russian soldiers further from Kiev, and hopefully that war will end right away and all the war criminals will be arrested and prosecuted. But even while we have been saying these two important verses that the Rebbe suggested to help bring calm and peace, unfortunately there has been an, there has been an increase in terrorist attacks in Israel. Shouldn't us saying these extra verses also help bring peace everywhere in the world, and especially in Israel, where it says the eyes of Hashem are always upon the land to protect it. Absolutely. There's no doubt that these verses should be helping it. I don't have explanations when we see events like tragic terrorist attacks and, what's, and to answer where, what happened to our prayers. This goes back to the big question throughout history, whether it was the Holocaust or other tragedies, that even when Jews prayed and they prayed from the deepest part of their heart, things didn't always work the way we wanted it to. So I don't have an answer. I can only say we need to continue doing what we need, we need to do, say these prayers with more kavan and more intention, add, encourage others to do so, add in every type of mitzvah and every good deed as we come to report Passover, help encourage as many people as possible to celebrate Passover in the fullest sense of the word. At the end of the day, we fight darkness with light. And even when the darkness sometimes intensifies, inexplicably, that doesn't mean that we say, oi, it hasn't worked our efforts. We never think that way. Our efforts always work. The question is whether it's faster or slower, whether we see the results immediately or we don't. So we must forge ahead and continue these activities. And yes, saying the Ireni Makabal and the Ach Dikim are all part of the process, indeed, and, and, and including any other things that we can do that are zgulas that help our brethren, our people, everywhere in the world, and especially in Eretz Yisrael. And may Hashem bless and help that we should no longer hear about any attacks, God forbid, and it should be utzu eitz of a sufar, and all plots and conspiracies should be eliminated completely, and uh, only experience beautiful things in a very most beteva, nidava, nigla, in a most revealed way. Because ki monu God is with us. And especially when we encourage children, another method where children, when they are encouraged to say verses and to strengthen the Torah, as I said, to eliminate and obliterate and completely annihilate any enemy. And as I said, we should be able to march into the Gula long before Pesach even, as we speak. And we don't have to wait till two weeks from now or a little less than two weeks for that Gula. And it should be Aran and Reflois, take her from Miyad Mamish immediately. So I want to now move and shift over to other topics. As you may notice, sometimes the topics are very much connected to the Parsha that we read or the time that we're in, in this case, the month of Nisan. But there are hundreds, if not thousands, of questions that I receive on personal matters. And I try to mix the two, sometimes more successfully than others, 
So there are a lot of personal topics that people have been writing, some of them heart-wrenching. And I will talk about a few of them right now. And I just want you to know, if you've asked a question and you haven't gotten an answer yet, please don't lose hope. I will answer it. Sometimes it takes a little longer simply because of the backup. And as you'll see here, I'm going to be answering questions that came in a while back, but they're still relevant. And I also know very often that a question that you may ask is relevant to many other people. So maybe there is a certain in the timing of different things. So I want to go over and really move over to a completely different topic, not in any way to minimize what we've addressed till now, very important global and personal issues, including the last topic, peace and shalom in Eretz Yisrael. But there are other issues that people struggle with, and let's address that as well in the context of chassidus applied. So the next few questions are far more personal ones. And the first one is about how can I guide my son struggling with gender issues? So we make a hefsig ben parsha la parsha, so to speak, and move to another topic that is, I mean, I'm sure everything relates to one another, but not ostensibly. How to veer my son in the right sexual direction? I've been blessed with only sons, and thank God many of them. One son, however, is different than the rest of them, and from a very young, very, and from a very, very young age, has been showing feminine tendencies, habits, mannerisms, and interests. I should add viewer discretion advised. I should have said it before I began reading because I know that many of these programs are watched by families, sometimes children. So if you, that's your choice as parents to determine. But I did want to give you ample, uh, I don't know if warning is the right word, but ample, um, an ample amount of time to recognize that I'm going to be reading something a little more sensitive. So to continue on, so this from the young, young age has been showing these tendencies. The other day, one of my older sons was asking my husband the definition of some words that describe not straight people. To one word, my husband gave him the definition, quote, not a male and not a female. To which my son, who I'm writing about here, pipes in, that's me. Is there anything I can do to make sure he stays only in the direction he is meant to go? Is there anything I can do now to veer him in this straight way? Okay, well, very difficult question to answer in this forum because I don't know all the details and it was always important to know more details in a person's life. But I will say a few key points. I think it's vital that you, speaking to the mother now, and father for that matter, talk to somebody, a professional, and hopefully a citizenship professional, who understands also the Torah perspective on it, and just really explain a little more detail what is going on. Second point, it would be also good, I don't know the age of the child or your son right now, to get your son to speak to someone. And we're not talking now about persuasion or um, coercion or in any way uh, preaching, just simply sensitivity and love. It's one of the most important things that's necessary, especially when you deal with issues like this that a person feels the trust and feels I could speak to someone. Now, I'm not suggesting this alone is going to solve all the issues, but that's the first step because that helps a person be able to express themselves and not be judged by what they're going to be saying. Many people in this situation, when they talk to someone, they either mock them or bully them or dismiss them or become very condescending, and it never helps because that demoralizes the individual spirit and how could that help that person grow? So it's vital. People have their tendencies. It could be from genetically. It could be other things that may have happened. We don't know the answer. But we know one thing is for sure. God created us, male and female, but also masculine people, feminine people. Feminine, females have masculine tendencies, a masculine part of their personality. And males have a feminine part of their personality. That's a common thing. That's with all of us. The question is the measure. So it's not something that is completely crazy. The question, however, is how we can help, as you're writing, your son. And the first thing is to speak sensitively. You and your husband, if your husband hopefully is also together with you in this, can speak to someone. If not, you can speak individually. But then also to get your son to have someone to speak to. And again, without a strict agenda. We're not talking about doing something. We're talking about just having a conversation, having a friend. And very often, people like, like your son get isolated. And when they do speak up or they behave a certain way, they will be 
mocked, they will be further, they can be bullied, as I mentioned, and they can be uh, pushed aside, and that only exacerbates and makes the situation far worse. That's how I would begin. Once that's there, you'll definitely get good direction if you speak to the right type of chassidship professional or chassidship person. And I, I could add a few more points, but I'd rather begin with that, because as I said, there's so many nuances. I will add the following. The goal of all of this would be is once you get to know your son better, or once a person that you speak to understands your son better, you can start seeing are there outlets that can give that your son a certain type of expression that he can feel comfortable with himself. Because it could very well be, it's not just a tendency, it could very well be just not comfortable with himself. And the question is why? Age is a critical thing, as I mentioned before. But the goal ultimately is to allow his soul to speak up. And I think when you allow that to happen, interesting things happen, I mean in a good way. And Hashem helps that you find the right language and the right behavior to help your son find his direction in life and be able to be strong about it and be able to be healthy about it. That's the ultimate goal. So I hope that's helpful. And um, if you have difficulty finding someone, please write to me. You can feel free, you can contact me and leave me some number or some email address and go to chassidahsupply.com. Um, but you have to give me some contact info and perhaps I can help you find the right person to speak to. Okay, a different note, but also a personal issue with the child. One of our married kids, 40 years of age, stopped talking to us or visiting us since COVID. Previously, we had a decent relationship. I understand when a parent has an addiction, has an addiction problem, there's a lot of shame involved from the parent's embarrassing behavior, which was not previously expressed. Also, some of the blame is on the other spouse who did not or could not control or stop the alcoholic parent from drinking. But now, when the parents are older and don't drink and need a relationship, why the sudden breakup? Is there anything I can do to repair and rebuild the relationship with my son? or it doesn't say son, actually, with my child. It's literally killing me, and I cry in my pillow every night. Okay, well, my heart goes out to you in any situation like this. You know, as a parent, as a grandparent, we all know how difficult things can be. And again, because this is, I don't know the details of all the, parameters here. I do hear the issue with the alcohol as aspect. I do wonder why COVID was the catalyst. Maybe that was an opportunity for your child, when I say child, your married 40-year-old, to finally break off, and he or she would have done it earlier. Maybe that's the reason. But you have to understand, you have to recognize the pain that your child is going through. There must be a very strong reason they're doing so. I'm not justifying it right now, but it could be they've been hurt deeply and they don't want to be in the line of fire. And even if it's true that you and your husband have moved away from whatever destructive behavior, whether it's alcoholism or other enabling that, etc., as you allude to, um, it still doesn't mean the pain went away from your children in this case. It's also interesting with, about the other married kids, what their attitude is. So here's what I would suggest. You have to continue to attempt, and maybe in a kind way, write a nice letter to your, to your child. I keep saying child, they just don't have another name because you haven't said it's male or female. Um, but you're married, married 40-year-old. And just, just say exactly that, that your heart is broken. You cry at night. You really want a connection. Is there anything we can do? Anything I can do? Maybe he's ready to be have a relationship with you and not your husband, or one of the parents. And I would just simply attempt that. I wouldn't do it to the point where you're going to estrange your child and your 40-year-old your even more. I would just express that. Now, it may be also worthwhile speaking to a third party, maybe a relative, or someone that knows this 40-year-old that can speak. But the goal here is not try to convince that you're all right or time has passed and now you just forget. You can't speak for another person's pain. 
if your 40-year-old is in pain, you, 40-year-old, you can't dismiss it and say, since I'm ready and we're healthier now, or we're no longer destructive as we are, you have to come around. That is not the way to go. Because that person has, that 40-year-old, your child has to have that right and ability to make choices. All you can do is make the effort and create the opportunity. Now, hopefully if another party can speak to the 40-year-old, then maybe something can come out of it. But I wouldn't do it as an agenda, definitely not manipulative, definitely not with any type of maneuvering, just as a sincere, honest reaching out. And if the 40-year-old does not respond, so be it. You may have to bear it for a while. And hopefully in time, things change. That's how I would address this issue with the minimal knowledge I have of the situation. The next question is, again, personal, has an overlap. And this is, why is it so difficult to find a mashpia to speak with? It's beautiful and wonderful that Chassidus has answers. Thank you for this broadcast that helps illustrate this. But sometimes what's needed isn't answers, but people who can listen. It's easy to find therapists who can listen, but where are the Chassidim who can listen? Or do we go to therapists to be heard and Chassidus we go to for direction. I don't know why, but lately I'm feeling like this is this beautiful philosophy and way of life and theory, but practically I'm having a rough day or going through a rough period and incapable of applying these ideas to my life. I need someone to talk to, and I'm feeling clueless. Who is there to guide? Who actually knows and respects the laws of Lush and Hara confidentiality, is what I mean? Who has the knowledge of Chassidus, yet is a mature, kind, gentle, trustworthy a sensitive person who doesn't give you the feeling that they are so busy who doesn't give you the feeling that they're so busy saving the world that they don't have time for you now I'm going through a challenging period right now maybe this is why I'm feeling this way I can google lots of information this, but for people not in the yeshiva setting where are the people that see them who can listen and guide why is the system of mashpiyim not so user friendly Or is that relegated to expensive life coaching and psychologists, etc.? Why does it seem, at least in my, that's been my experience, that people with axis are more sensitive humans? As insensitive to people, it seems that certain chassidim are interested in proving or impressing people with how amazing chassidim is, but less about connecting with and turning into humans. Mention. Chassidim has incredible life-giving content, what good is the content if there aren't people available to help with the process of integrating the content into our lives? Okay, a whole series of grievances. Sadly, I have heard this from others as well, so I know it's not an exception. I read it without any uh, gloves. I think some of it was a little harsh, and I'm not going to agree with every tone that people use, but nevertheless, you cannot delegitimize a person's feelings. And being that I have heard it from many, this is an issue, and I'm, the reason I'm reading it is because I want us all to put our heads together here. I've spoken many times about the Rebbe's directives back Yutas Kislev Tovshin Lamed Zayin, when the Rebbe first came out with Mashpim, and then continued in the weeks after that, and then Yutshvat, and Tubishvat, for men, for women, Mashpim, Mashpies. It's absolutely, as the Rebbe says, they're necessary, because Chassidus is a doctrine. But the Torah also has Rabbonim and individual soul doctors that are also meant to be practitioners of this doctrine. And I call it specifically soul doctors. So we absolutely do need a revolution in this regard where each of us has to offer our, ourselves to be mashpim. Like the Rebbe says in that whether it will work out or not, we'll see based on the results. But we have to make ourselves available and I definitely know there are gentle people and kind people and compassionate people. Not everybody has to be perfect. But we have to turn this into a movement because the fact is there are hundreds, thousands of people like this writer that are seeking someone to talk to in a sensitive way, in a non-judgmental way, in a kind way, in a trustworthy way. So I, so I just see this as an opportunity for us to really do something about it. And practically speaking means if you feel 
You're capable, even if it's one person, just make yourself available. Not in an arrogant way, in a humble way. If you like to speak, I'm available to speak. And I've told stories about this, quite a number of stories of people who actually did that and they helped and saved other people's lives. And of course, we need to train our next generation that they should have that capacity, that sensitivity. I mean, let's, at the end of the day, when the Rebbe sent young men and women to go and speak to communities, to speak on Shabbos and so on, it was not just to speak, but also to learn the sensitivity, the empathy necessary in how you speak in ways that people can communicate with you and feel, you know what, someone I can go speak to, someone I could trust. Now, of course, there are issues that are more complex that you need someone a little more trained and more experienced. But you have to begin somewhere. So I could not emphasize this enough. So thank you for bringing it up. Finally, let's do the Chassidus question. Chassidus question is about the Nasi prayer. So every day we say the Nasi, and then we say Yehi Ratzin. So here's what the person is asking. Dear Rabbi Jacobson, Rabbi Jacobson, greetings and blessings. Thank you for your dedication in spreading the wisdom of our Torah far and wide. Your teachings are life-saving and renewing. Could you please explain the meaning of the birds in the prayer we recite after we recite the gift each Nasi brought during the first days of Nisan? We ask Hashem to shine upon the holy souls that renew themselves as birds, tziperim, and take in the, those sacred birds to the holy place of which it is said, no eye has ever seen it except you, O God. Who are the holy souls who renew themselves as birds? And what does it mean that Hashem should take them into the holy place, etc.? Thank you so much. Aziz and Pesach to you and all. So that's exactly the prayer, the Hiratsan, to say the original Loshan exactly, that we say, so that's translated as I just did in English. So it's interesting, I happened to be teaching Ayan Bays recently, and this, I, I believe, you have an answer to your question straight in Hemshech Ayan Bays, among other places. Though he doesn't refer to this particular prayer, but he talks and cites the same idea. And I'm referring to volume 3, page 1256, where he is explaining the verse that says, Yizbu Atse Hashem, that the trees of God should be sated, should be enriched, should be filled up. And then the Pasuk continues, the Pasuk continues, Asheshom Tzipedim Yekananu, and those and those trees is where the birds nest. And he brings from Eitz Chaim that who are these birds referring to? He says these are the neshamas, human souls and angels that are compared to, to uh, birds. Why like birds? Because they're transcendent in nature. They fly. They soar like birds, higher than earth. And he actually goes on to speak about neshamas on that level that are far more ethereal than regular souls. So clearly you can say that this prayer is invoking this level of souls. And he says, these are the tzaddikim that travel through the chambers, the hecholis, like Rabbi Yishmol, Koyen Godlin, Rabbi Akiva. And he brings others as well about these higher souls that are higher than, just the, than manifesting in the physical world. They always remain like birds soaring and nesting in the trees. And he goes on to say the same with the Arizal, the Balshemtev, who all came from these higher spiritual levels. This is page, the bottom of page 1256 and 1257 in Ayin Bey's volume 3, which is the part that the Rebbe Hashab never delivered, but he wrote. And he, and he continues to speak about these neshamas, and he says clearly, these are the shebedim, these are the birds that nest, these neshamas that come from that higher level. So clearly, when we're saying the prayer of the Nasi, and then we say that we should find within ourselves that, we're invoking these special birds that are able to access these higher levels, even the levels that are divinely concealed from the rest of us. Like he says, like, 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 the, like, we, like he says, <laughs> levels that no eye has seen, which usually refers to also, <laughs> so there you can look up, and perhaps that helps understand the prayer we say after the Nasi. Now with that, let's conclude. We say the Nasim, there's a beautiful Sikhe Vayikra Tav Shemem Zayin, 
where the Rebbe speaks about the power of saying the Nasi each day. And of course, it includes the Nasi of Bnei Asher, which is Yural of Nisan, and the rest of the Nisim, and talk about the eternity of these Nisim and the blessing that each of us has because we draw that Nasi within us, like he says afterwards. Another Hiratsan at the end, that I, Shekarasi Bitzay, that when I read this, that it should be radiate within each one of us these higher states of divine consciousness. And with that, we'll conclude this episode 397 of My Life Chassidus Applied. We're here every Sunday, 8 to 9 p.m. Next week, we'll have a special Yud Aleph Nissen, 120 years edition, plus a special Pesach part as well. Everyone should have, we can already wish each other a kosher of Freilich and Pesach. It should be a month of Geula right now. Geula Amitiz Vashlema Chedesha Geula, month of Nisim. Jews everywhere, be protected. People everywhere, live only in peace and march into the Geula, which will be a world of only peace, no longer war, no longer hunger, no longer any injustice, only blessings in a revealed way, personally and globally. Thank you very much. Be well.